Titus chapter 3, we, we've, we're, this is the same passage as we went through last week um, because we saw that, that as on a coin there is two sides, and if I was to hold up a, a 10 cent coin to you today and ask what is on this coin, you might tell me there's some tails, there's the number 10, and I would say, well, right, kind of wrong. Actually, there's a face and there's some writing around the edge. Uh, really, the correct response would be, I'm looking at one side, you're looking at the other. There's two perspectives here. When we look at salvation, we find the same thing. We, we see that there is a, a way to speak of salvation, and the Bible does this, that is sort of not human-centered, but from the human perspective, and that there is a way to talk about salvation that is from God's perspective. So we saw, saw this all happening in Titus chapter 3, 1 through to the end of verse 11. Um, believers are spoken of, well, just as that. He speaks of Christians as those who have believed in Christ, believed in God, those who have converted their lives. That means that we, 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 we change our life to start following Jesus and, and, and we have repented from sin. That's, that's all, all things that are done by us and that's human language. And it's right to speak that way. That I, in my, by, when I heard the gospel, I believed in Jesus, I had faith. I decide to stop living one way, start living another way. I converted my life to be a Christian lifestyle. It's accurate to speak that way. It's accurate to say that I repented of my sin. I turned away from it. I, I've uh, uh, instead brought my confession and my sin to Christ and been forgiven. That's true. That's, that's all uh, accurate, but it's insufficient to speak only of that as the whole picture of salvation. Because we're going to see three themes come through uh, four sharp verses today that really put it in the, the onus of salvation and this perspective entirely upon God. So look now at verse 1. We're going to read through to the end of verse 7. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 1 in the book of Titus says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not, by, uh, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Somebody give me an amen. I love the way Paul writes here, but you saw the change that happened, right? At the beginning of verse 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, he's speaking about our behavior before Christ, our behavior since we've become Christians, what we ought to be doing. He does the same in verse 8 through to 11. But in these poignant verses, verses 4 to 7, he changes the notch and says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. That's the, the basis of today's sermon. 
The friends, as we as Christians, though we can speak of our decision to follow, our daily decision to obey, our continual act of repenting and turning from sin, that is all, all a, a, a small element of our salvation when we realize that, that, that though we're making these decisions, we're doing these things for decades and years in our human life, but from God's point of view, our salvation is eternal. It, we have been, as his chosen people, in his heart for eternity. His plan to save us has been an eternal plan, and he is the ultimate basis of our salvation in every sense. And so where last week we spoke about our faith, today we're going to speak of justification from God, as God's act. Where last week we spoke about our conversion of our life, Today we're going to speak of the regeneration that God does to us to change us. And whereas last week we spoke about our, our continual repentance, uh, rather today we, we, we look at how we are adopted by God to have an inheritance and a hope of eternal life. <clears throat> so again, let's just remind ourselves, this is God-centered. God is the decisive Savior. <clears throat> look also here that, that we see it says in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So we see there are two, two elements of God's heart. His, his goodness, that's his, how he is uh, uh, benevolent. He is kind. He does good to all. When that overflowing goodness of his heart came, well, we also see loving kindness. This is the word for, uh, for philanthropy, right? Somebody who, who with their riches and with their goods does good to common man. That's, um, uh, that's the, that comes from the word here. Philanthro uh, 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 philanthropy comes from this Greek word behind the words loving kindness. We also see down in verse uh, uh, 6, uh, sorry, verse 7, that we are justified by his grace. We see at the end of verse 5 here, not by our works, but according to his own mercy. These are all the, the motivations that we see. Why are we saved? Not because we brought anything to the table. Not because we are anything in ourselves whatsoever that, that attracted God's attention or, or his, his heart or his love or rewards from him. It is nothing to do with us. We see here the entire motivation is God's own heart, his own decision. When he should have hated us, he loved us. When he should have cursed us, he blessed us. When he should have cast us out, he instead, by his own initiation, came to draw us near. When he should have wiped us out in death, he lavished on us eternal life. Today's sermon, the Christian message, if it's new to you or if you need a reminder, it is the strangest of good news. It is the most upside down, reverse, back to front message that you would think God would usher from heaven through the, through the lips of his prophets and apostles and preachers. It is backward news that the God who had every reason to hate has poured out love by hating his own son in our place. <clears throat> This is the good news for us today. <clears throat> so if you're a sinner today, you, you, may, you may be thinking that, that salvation comes to those who have, who have come, unto, uh, uh, come worthy to God. But you need to know, do you come unworthy today if you're not in Jesus? If you don't have faith in him, you've not been born again, you have not had a changed life and begun following him. You come unworthy. And that is the only person to whom God extends his grace and salvation. The worthy can get their own way to heaven. The worthy can find their own salvation. They can make it themselves. But the unworthy, you and I, 
we come today to receive from the riches of God's grace. So let's look into it. Let's start looking at regeneration. We're going to see this here in in verse, uh, uh, at the end of verse 5. Regeneration. It says here, there's there's four words in the Greek which are pretty much just listed all together. It says, by thee, right? This is how he saved us, by his grace, not because of our good doing and righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Here's what he did. By the washing, that's one word, of regeneration, that's another word, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. These are four main uh, 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 subjects that come together in one glorious theme of the Bible's doctrine of regeneration. How is it that uh, and, and of course, there's all these different elements of salvation. There's one way we can speak of forgiveness, but there's also this, this element that we can speak of, of recreation, becoming new, becoming cleaned is one of the, the frequent Old Testament uh, themes. You remember when they, were, when they built the tabernacle or they built the temple, then the, the priests had to go through all of the cleansing, the washing, the, the clean clothes, all, all in white with, with all of those, the, the, the unmixed garments, and they would uh, uh, sprinkle themselves, they would take the blood, they would sprinkle the items, they would sprinkle themselves, they would sprinkle the people, they would sprinkle the book. All of this was, was language and themes of cleanliness. And I want you to go with us to Ezekiel, Chapter 36, verse 25 through to 27. And we see here the the substance of what God really meant with all of that cleaning imagery. Just remember, no priest, no sinner, no Israelite was ever made clean in God's sight with holy water and blood of a bull. Ever. Ever. It was all done in faith as an imagery of what God was really speaking of. And Ezekiel, God's prophet, speaks of it in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. He says, I, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my Rules. Go now to John chapter 3, the first few verses of John chapter 3. So you saw all this language there of cleansing, but God increased it, sort of, sort of upped the ante here, jumped up a notch and started speaking of not just cleansing, but recreation. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, which, which we might think as, as a human act, when they do it, their priest sprinkles clean water on them. They are not cleansed a, a, a single bit in terms of their actual heart, their idolatry, their desire to sin, their love of breaking the law. None of them ever, ever walked away like they'd been floating, started floating above the ground like, like pixie dust because some, some priest sprinkled water on them. It had no substantial effect. But then God starts speaking of recreative language. 
when he sprinkles spiritual clean water upon them, something fundamental changes. He says the heart comes out, a new heart that can actually beat with spiritual light comes in. He recreates us. He puts a new spirit within us instead of a dead spirit. And then on top of that, he gives us his spirit. But of course, Jesus speaks of this exact thing in John chapter 3. If you've ever read John chapter 3 and been very confused, today is the day of your salvation. John chapter 3, Jesus says in verse 3, he's speaking, of course, to Nicodemus, somebody who was the highest teacher in the land of Israel. He knew his scripture. He just knew none of what it was pointing to because what it was pointing to was standing in front of him and he was still blind. The king was in front of him and he could not notice the kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The proof of that is in Nicodemus. He's standing in front of the king who is literally bringing the kingdom in his preaching and healing ministry and Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. He cannot see it. It doesn't matter how how closely you hold an image to a blind man's face. If he tells you, I'm sorry, I'm blind, I can't see that. Enlarging the picture and shoving it closer to his head does no good. And yet here we have Jesus speaking to Nicodemus face to face and he still does not see the kingdom because he has not been Ezekiel 36 born again. No matter how many times he's been sprinkled, he's recited the words, he does not have true spiritual regeneration. But look now at verse 5 and 6. To a very good question. Actually, go through verse 4. It's a very good question that Nicodemus has for a spiritually blind man. <clears throat> he said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can, an, a, can he enter again into his mother's womb? He's a, a bit of a biologist. He knows that doesn't work. Mum's not up for that. I'm not going to even ask. This is not going to work, Jesus. Your system is foolishness. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So so whatever water and spirit here means, and so often we're told it's baptism and it's infilling, or or whatever you've been told, it's it's, it's infant baptism and it's this, or it's... Jesus just used the words, uh, born of water and spirit, in place of the words, being born again. He said up in verse 3, unless you be born again, you don't see the kingdom. And then he says again, if you're not born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh. So now he's going back to the same thing. Being born of water and spirit is to be born again, because he's now speaking of birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what Ezekiel was speaking of when he was reflecting on through the prophecy of God on all of the Old Testament cleansing language, what God was foreshadowing, what Ezekiel was prophesying, and what Jesus was speaking of is regeneration. That God, by his sovereignty, he, he speaks not just to cleanse us like a clean slate, 
Right? If, if you take a, a filthy mine worker who's covered in dust and, and oil and grime, and, and you as a, as a great neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe a deacon in the church, they, they say, we're going to go and clean this guy's living room. It's filthy. The boots st- uh, uh, steps are everywhere. The, the lounge is just covered with muck. And so you go in and you vacuum and you... That's all I know how to do. Whatever other things you do to clean... You do that, and, and there it is, this shining, beautiful, white living room. But, but you don't solve the problem, which is the man himself. Then he comes into that clean room and, and mucks it up all over again. The good news of the gospel is not simply, friends, that you've been cleaned, your past is gone, your heart is now, is, is now uh, got, got a great fresh wrapping over it, and you've got a clean start. Because before the sermon is finished, before you walk out of the door, it is filthy again. What Jesus does instead is say that born of water and spirit is speaking of Ezekiel's prophecy, that he gives a new heart, not simply cleanses the outside, but gives a new heart, gives a new spirit so that you are willing to obey Christ, so that you are able to see the kingdom and enter it in Jesus' language. So the cleanse, so back in Titus chapter 3 here, when it says, <clears throat> in Titus chapter 3, when it says, the washing of regeneration, I disagree with some of the commentators who say that that's speaking of baptism and a separate regeneration. It really should be washing and regeneration. No, friends, in Jesus' language, in Ezekiel's mind, regeneration is the more decisive, deep cleansing. You are made a new person, therefore you are clean from your idols. Your heart is changed, your desires are new, so you don't go back to the uncleanness. I hope that makes sense. This is the the ultimate need that we have in the gospel to be made entirely new. A cleansing, a repair would never do. And so he says also, by the washing of regeneration, the, the being born again, the becoming a new person, receiving a new heart, and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, they are all speaking of the same thing. You have been made new. Every brick of the old structure of your spirit was torn down and it was entirely rebuilt. It was not a renovation. Everything that was unclean was cast out and you have been made now a child of God by nature. That is regeneration. This is the Lord's doing. We did not help him do this. We were passive in this. He did this to us. Just as he spoke light into creation in Genesis 1, he spoke it, there came the light. The light did not act, it did not decide, the world did not create itself, but it came by God's word. And so it is in regeneration. God speaks, you became alive, like Jesus standing outside of the grave of Lazarus. Get up, Lazarus, and up he came, by the power of the word of God's spirit. So we see here regeneration. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.17, having this in the background, says that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To remind us again that this is a sovereign work of God, the beginning of the next verse says, all this is from God. 
God acted on us. We were passive recipients of regeneration from the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, he also, uh, in verse 6, this is again a throwback to Ezekiel, that he would give us a new heart and spirit. But remember, Ezekiel also said that then he would put his spirit within us. That was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So in verse 6, it says that while we were renewed by the Holy Spirit, he then poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We don't believe here in a, you get saved, you receive a, a sprinkling of the Spirit, but then by, by added spiritual acts or religious ceremonies or cultic uh, chants, you get an infilling, like a, 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 a re-baptism, a, a second, third, fourth, fifth baptism that, that gives to you the fullness of the Spirit. We believe every Christian, this is a part of regeneration. He builds the temple and then he fills the temple. That's every Christian's experience. Whether, whether or not you, you remember that happening, that, that's not something I think we physically sense at all. It's something we, by faith, know. When I had faith, it was because God made me alive. Regeneration, we, we need to know this. Regeneration precedes faith. goes before faith. It's because we've been made new by God's sovereignty that then we can believe in Jesus. Not because we choose to believe and God then does his part of the work. He regenerates, we believe, and we receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. His person entirely given to us, giving us communion with Jesus Christ, our Savior. <clears throat> Going down to verse 7. Verse 7. Justification. There we have regeneration, God's work in making us new. Now we have justification in God declaring something about us. Verse 7 says, so that being justified by his grace, and then we will look at the following, uh, the rest of the verse just afterwards, but so that being justified by his grace. Justification is different from regeneration. Regeneration changes your nature, your behavior, you. Justification does not affect your nature or your behavior one iota. Justification is the declaration of God that you are now considered righteous in his sight. The word there is literally righteousification. God has righteousified you. That, that's what he, he made you righteous, but not by making you righteous. He declared you righteous under the law. Now looks at you and sees righteousness because on you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's some distinctions to make. Faith by itself has no power to justify or save. We, we, we of course, we, we, we can uh, confess and believe and preach justification by faith alone. God, God does all of his work and by faith alone we receive the benefits of Jesus Christ. But faith in itself is powerless. It has no saving quality. If, if God had not first wrought salvation and then ordained that by faith we receive it, faith would do nothing. They don't think that because we have all this faith, we're twisting God's arm to do something to save us. That's not the reality. But also when it says here that we're justified by his grace, in the same sense, grace in its own self is powerless. God is a holy God looking down on us. God being himself just and righteous, which means blessing the righteous people, 
and cursing the unrighteous people, punishing the evil, uh, uh, giving rewards to the good, that, that being God's standard of justice, him having grace and forgiveness and love means nothing. We see this in Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 34. We know this, that, that when he, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 34, that, that God says, I'm, I'm abounding in loving kindness, rich in grace and, and steadfast love, but, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Grace itself does not save. But what grace brings God to do, what God's grace accomplishes in Jesus is able to justify to both uphold the law and punish sin and yet pour out forgiveness in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. Let's, let's remember that very clearly. By grace here, he means what he meant, look back into last chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> when he says the grace of God justifies, he means what he meant, uh, he's referring to what he meant in verse 11 when he said, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What he meant by grace is Jesus coming and dying for sin and resurrecting for sinners to produce an everlasting righteousness and an eternal life for all those who believe. That's what he means by grace. It's not simply a, a discarding of the righteous standards, but a fulfilling of them in Jesus instead of us. <clears throat> Let's keep going. This is regeneration, which we receive by God's sovereign act. Justification, which we receive by faith because God declares it of us and provides Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of verse 7, so the whole of verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. That means that you have an inheritance. When, when we speak of inheritance, whenever you sing, like we just did, of, of having an inheritance, whenever you read of being heirs, see behind that word the great and glorious doctrine of adoption. You don't get the, the inheritance of the Father if you are not a son. If you And, and I know we, we might want to throw in their sons and daughters, uh, but, but while I'm, I'm an equalist here, the, the, the culture of, of both the Hebrew and the Roman culture, to be a, a daughter of, of a rich man meant very little. You don't get the inheritance. The reason it's so often saying sons is, is though men and women legally can become sons of God, sonship is what receives the fullness of the inheritance. I hope that's, that's clear. <clears throat> so we, by, by being heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, uh, adoption is, is the legal declaration about us that we are sons of God. Often people will say that you know, justification is this big legal, dry, clinical courtroom scene. And, you know, but adoption is this personal doctrine. It's this really loving, kind, warm doctrine. And I just see that as a, a false dichotomy. Justification is a warm, glorious, beautiful family doctrine. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's personal because God is justifying me as a person. But also adoption is a legal word. We don't get to say that it's, it's relational, therefore not legal. It's legal. It's because I'm legally a son that he, he refers to me as such. So, so these go together. Justification and adoption are similar in that they're legal changes about us. But adoption and regeneration have some similarities and distinguishes, uh, 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 distinctions as well. Uh, adoption makes us children of God uh, according to an inheritance. 
but it doesn't change our nature. Regeneration makes us children of God by nature, but it doesn't change our inheritance. Do you see the, the difference here? Regeneration changes our behavior so we act like our Father. It changes our heart so that we desire the will of our Father. It changes what we are by nature so that we are by nature like the one we have been born from. But it doesn't earn for us or receive automatically that we have the inheritance that is in Jesus Christ. That comes after justification. That's why we've got this order today. We are first regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. Having been regenerated, we produce faith in our newly born hearts and believe on Jesus and are then declared righteous in justification. Then being righteous, God then brings us into the family of his son to receive the full inheritance that he earned for us. He earned for us. This is what we receive in this inheritance. That we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're often told about our inheritance. It means the kingdom in all of its fullness. All of its In the Christian religion, there is no room, there is no time, there is no space for talk about deserve, about worth, or, or what, you, what you've earned. Friends, don't bring that language in, in your minds to the worship of the triune God. Don't say, I, I hear these words spoken, I, I read that in the text, but I just, I don't deserve it. I don't feel worthy. Friends, of course, that, that's the mindset you ought to come to the Scripture, but then let the Scriptures speak to, to do away with that thinking, that now in Christ, not what you deserve, but what Christ has deserved for you is your inheritance. Dude, this, this just does away with, with all that, that melancholy and that, that navel-gazing, that, that deep, dark sadness that we just bring when we focus on ourselves. I'm, I'm not speaking of clinical depression here. I'm speaking of, of Christians who don't put their eyes to the glorious mountains of God's salvation, which stand. We're not holding them up. It's not your feelings. It's not your, your weak, how good it was, how, how careful you were about what you looked at, how you spoke, how you behaved. That's not why you're saved. It's God's kingdom given to you as an inheritance for what your older brother Jesus earned for you. So it's the fullness of the kingdom. It's, it's fellowship with God through his son. And I'm of course, we have some now in all these things we're going to say. We have some now. We have the fullness yet to come. We have fellowship with God through His Son. But in the ages to come, we will have full face-to-face, -face, visible fellowship with Jesus Christ and through Him, the Father. We have in our inheritance to come a perfect world. That though we will be working in it, we will not be in a cursed earth like we are now. And it will never be able to fall again. In heaven, in glory, where we will receive the full inheritance that Christ has earned, we will receive perfect souls. Friends, does it make you excited to know that there is a day coming when you will be done away with all of your foolishness? All of your personal sin, your, those things which cause infighting in the family, frustration in the workplace, bickering between brothers and sisters, we will do away with it all. Bloodshed will be gone because we will be perfect. We will be free from sinning. We have that purchased for us by Jesus Christ. 
We also have perfect relationships. One of the, the elements and the themes that, that Scripture speaks of is, our, is, is, is that in sin, we are, we are at war with one another. But in the world to come, what Christ has done is reconciled us to the Father and reconciled us to one another. That we will, because we have no sin, we will be in perfect love and unity that we have never even imagined. You get a taste of it in the church. I implore you to act that way now. Do all that you can to bring that kingdom to this world in how we treat one another. For that is how we prove that we are disciples of Jesus. But looking forward to what is perfect and eternal that is coming. And that really is the last point of this inheritance. It is eternal. No matter how, how rich your father is, how, how, how glorious the inheritance is that comes from your great-grandfather who passed away but, but left a castle in England and, and gold in Spain and whatever else he had for you, it is possible to diminish it. You get enough, especially if, if it's you and a hundred other great-grandchildren. It can be depleted through foolish spending, through, just simply through time itself, even with prudence. It will be depleted. But the inheritance that Jesus has earned was purchased at the cost of an infinite life. And the inheritance that we have to receive then is infinite in value, but also in, 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 its, in its expanse, how, how long it will last. It is eternal. I'm not going to ask you this morning to try and wrap your minds around that. Just, just think of eternity and try and imagine what never, ever, ever, ever ending means. We, we're temporal beings. We just can't. But put your hope in this, that, that that is what Christ has earned and it is undefiled, undiminishable and imperishable, perfect, kept for us, Peter says, by the power of God. So I have to ask you this morning, is that your hope? Have you been in this life just, just, just putting your hope in things that leave you depressed and crushed and you fall down? Maybe you throw all of your weight on, on who will be leading your country. Maybe you put all of your, your hope of, 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 of Christian power, religion and life and, and satisfaction in this life on who you're going to marry or maybe on, on, on your parents or maybe on any other thing, an, an income, a certain job. Is, is your hope placed on anything and if it is, you will experience, by God's grace, the painful hurt of a failed hope. As, as you go to place your weight on that in a hard time, or you, you rely on its unending quality and it crumbles in your hand and you fall to the ground. That is God's grace, showing you that there is one hope. There is one thing that is worthy of your steadfast hope, and that is Christ. It is the inheritance you have to come. So while we hold that firmly, let us hold loosely the riches of this earth. Let us hold loosely to the relationships, the jobs, the anything else that, that will diminish our rewards in heaven. We have coming for us perfection. Friends, I also want to ask you, have you, have you let yourself come, come under some kind of thinking, some kind of mindset that has placed your salvation on you? Your, your right standing before the Lord on you. I, I often think to myself, that there's no more practical way of testing this than, than asking what your mindset is, what you're picturing, what, what you're thinking and feeling as you enter into prayer. Private prayer alone with the Lord. 
Those, those first few thoughts as you're trying to, to work on, on and, and, and work in prayer are, are very telling of our heart. If we're there and trying to remind ourselves we're just not as bad as, as, as our conscience is telling us, if, if we're trying to forget about the things we've been doing the last few days, if, if we're doing any of those, it's showing that, our, that in the deepest corners of our hearts, the reason we draw near to the Lord is because we're just that nice. But friends, consciously, intentionally work. Take very, uh, and, 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 and uh, pay very careful attention to what you pay attention to in terms of your confidence in salvation. Look frequently to the first few chapters of the book of Romans. Read frequently Romans 8. Read frequently Titus 2 if you find yourself constantly, constantly uh, feeling depressed and dejected from the presence of God. Your justification is not on you, but on Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I want to ask you, friends, in, as it speaks here, through the book of Titus, by the pen of Paul, to the churches in Crete, have you been regenerated? And, and I don't mean have you had somewhat of a conversion experience where, uh, where my life was going this way, but I've decided to tag along with my wife to church, or, or I decided to go and hang out at church because there I get good community and, and some encouragement and some life lessons. I don't mean has there been any effect of religion on your life. I mean you, alone with the Lord, Assessing your own heart, do you recall, do you know that you have been born of God? I'm not talking about a tingly experience that happened one time. I'm saying, have you been born again? That though you are not what you should be, you can look at who you have been and marvel at nothing else than the grace of God, which by his sovereign spirit made you a new person. Have you been born again? Have you, through the scripture you know, the verses you've memorized, the church that you've been going to, have, have you seen through all of that Jesus who is standing in front of you as the king of a kingdom that you cannot enter unless you are born again? Because as, as eternal as our inheritance coming is, so eternal is the, the death and the darkness, the gloom, the terror, the torment that befalls and waits for every one of us who play religion with unrepentant hearts, who, who draw near to, to an invisible kingdom having never been truly born again by the word of God. Death swallows thousands in a day. It is hungry. It is insatiable, taking millions to the bellies of hell. And we will go there if we have not been born again. There is no more urgent question. Have you, by God's power, been regenerated? And if not, your part, your part is to cry out to him for that mercy. You can't do something to make the Spirit make you born, but you can cry for mercy. You can pray to him for his grace, and you can look to Jesus in the Scriptures as often as you possibly can to behold his gospel and see there, Jesus, believe, and you will know then that you have been born again. Let's pray, friends. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the word that you have spoken through your prophets, through, through your priests, through shepherds, through your apostles. And now, Lord, we have a completed book, a completed canon which speaks to us the entirety of your salvation. That as its center and over all is Jesus Christ, the message of the Bible. God, we thank you that, that here, as, as Paul has reminded 
us that our salvation is not a social change. Our salvation is not a, a human activity. It is a divine, glorious, miraculous act. We thank you, God, that we have something sure and steadfast to throw our weight upon. That we have something and someone that will never change, that is perfect, immutable, all-glorious, all-powerful. And in your glory and power, Lord, you have, you have ordained to bring salvation to the unworthy, undeserving sinners that we are. I pray, God, that us who know you, we who, who have entered into your grace, Lord, would you refresh us and renew us with the glorious riches that salvation is? Or would you keep us, Lord, keep us from keeping this to ourselves? Open our mouths, embolden our hearts to speak to our dying loved ones. Though in the pinnacle of health they are dying and, and careering towards death and hell, Lord. Pray that you would give us the spirit-born boldness to speak, to call them out of death by the power of your word. And God, those who are here and, and yet do not know you, by the word written, by the word read, by the word preached, would you bring them out of their graves, bring them to spiritual life, make them born again to the glory of our King Jesus. Populate your kingdom with souls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to this end. May you glorify yourself through what happens and how you are worshipped in this church. In Jesus' wonderful, glorious name, we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. 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 This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.